Welcome to another inspirational message from London Live Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. In 1951, the American blues guitarist and songwriter Lowell Fulson recorded a song called Sinner's Prayer. Not many people have heard this song in his performing. Um, He's the one who wrote it and first recorded it. It was later recorded by Ray Charles. Now, Ray Charles started at the beginning of his career. He was in Lowell Fulson's band, and he later recorded this song and made it uh, somewhat more popular. And it reached even uh, higher levels of popularity when B.B. King and um, Billy Preston and Bruce Willis, of all people, um, performed this song as a tribute to Ray Charles after his death. Lowell Fulson doesn't get enough credit um, as a musician, and especially as a songwriter. He wrote a number of songs that have become uh, blues standards over the years. Uh, And if there's any blues fans among you who are listening to this live or watching this recording later, let me know. Um, Write in the comment section and let me know that you like blues and that you appreciate Lowell Fulson. The lyrics of this song are very simple. The lyrics to the song Sinner's Prayer simply say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. If I've done somebody wrong, Lord, have mercy, if you please. Lord, have mercy. In Greek, it would be Kyrie eleison. This cry, this, this, this simple prayer has been, literally for millennia now, an integral, central part of so many Christian liturgies, Christian worship services. It has been said, uh, recited, chanted, sung in many different ways. It has been set to many different melodies and tunes over the centuries. Um, and... It is read as part of Psalm 51 uh, on Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent in um, many Christian communities. And it's also read on the fifth Sunday of Lent, which is tomorrow. In the Eastern Christian tradition, um, something that I am familiar with because that is the Christianity that I grew up in, in the Balkans, there is this great emphasis on a particular practice of praying a very particular prayer, the so-called Jesus prayer, or the prayer of the heart. And this is also a very simple and short prayer that simply says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's the whole prayer. And, and people often pray this prayer over and over and over again. And, and there is a lot of theology that is condensed in this very simple prayer. But it also contains this cry, this, this primordial scream that simply says, Lord, have mercy. Psalm 51, which you read earlier, starts with these same words. The psalmist says, have mercy on me. Oh God, this psalm is the, one of the most utilized, one of the most used psalms in Christian liturgies around the world. It has been set to music many times. 
every one of you has at some point heard some tune that takes some inspiration from one or another verse from this psalm. But essentially what this psalm is, is a song. And it's a blues song. Lord have mercy. David sings the blues. But unlike Lowell Fulson, unlike his song Sinner's Prayer, which I very much like, I don't particularly like this song. I don't very much like David's blues. You see, the thing about blues, those who are a fan of the music will know that it is a very sincere kind of music. It is a raw and honest type of music, full with raw and honest emotions. It is very self-reflective. It is introspective, if you will. And David's blues, although it is very emotional indeed, it lacks, at least to my ears, it lacks certain self-reflection. So when I read it, I keep thinking to myself, Lord have mercy. Because what this man is doing, how he's singing this song, I don't like it. You see, in the introduction to this psalm, um, in some Bibles it is found as, as a header or introduction before the actual verse 1. But in the original um, Hebrew and in the Greek translation, th those introductions appear as verses in their own right. So in verses 1 and 2, in the original of this psalm, it says, A psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him, after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now the story of David and Bathsheba is such a well-known story uh, that, that I feel like there is a danger with these well-known stories. There is a danger that we don't actually read them. Because we feel like we know what they're about. And when we do read them, there is another danger that we don't actually pay attention to what we are reading because we think that we know where the story is going. We think that we know what's going on. So let us actually read the story of David and Bathsheba together in the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, and verses 1 to 5. We read the following. In the spring of the year, perhaps it was the first day of spring, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon, perhaps around this time, when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house, and then he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman, and it was reported to him, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So let us try and understand what exactly happened this 
late afternoon this evening on this spring day, perhaps the first day of spring. But to understand what happened that afternoon or evening, we first need to understand David's history with women. See, David had no shortage of women in his life. First, there was Michal, the daughter of Saul. Uh, to get her hand in marriage, he paid King Saul 200 Philistine foreskins. Then there was Abigail, the widow of the evil Nabal, and uh, with whom he had a son. But then there was also Ahinoam, who is mentioned kind of in passing as David was returning back home with uh, his new wife, Abigail. Suddenly he has another wife, Ahinoam, whom he married immediately after marrying Abigail, with whom he also had a son. Then there is Maka, the daughter of King Talmai, with whom he had two children, a son and a daughter. Then there is Haggith, with whom he also had a son. Then there is Abital, with whom he also had a son. Then there is Egla, and she gave him yet another son. Then there are the unknown number of wives that he inherited from King Saul. Then there is also the unknown number of wives that he took when moving into Jerusalem, with whom he had eight children in total. So before ever laying eyes on Bathsheba, David had had sex with at least six or seven named women and an unknown number of other women with whom he had children. Not to mention the unknown number of other concubines and women with whom he did not have children. To say that David was promiscuous would be a severe understatement. Now, I'm not an expert in this field. Some of you are doctors and nurses, and you may be able to help me and confirm this. But what I have been taught in school is that when you have sex with multiple partners who have, who have themselves had sex with other multiple partners, you run the risk of catching a sexually transmitted disease. And there are some scholars who think that this is exactly what happened to David. When we read in Psalm 38 the following words, My wounds grow foul and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate and lay all day long. I go around mourning for my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. Now there's the blues, if ever there was one. David quite literally was sowing his seed around and now he is reaping what he sowed. The point is that David had no shortage of access to women in his life. He also had a history of collecting women and using them as sex objects. Now with this in mind, we now approach the scene that we read earlier. And, and, and a few things could be said about this, this um, detail that at the beginning of spring when, when kings went out to battle, David stayed in Jerusalem. That is probably for, for a different sermon. But for whatever reason, David stayed behind and he decided to go out on his roof, the roof of his home, his palace. And he gets a nice little walk around and then 
he sees a woman bathing from the roof and she was very beautiful. Now I've heard many sermons and I have read many articles and even portions of books where Bathsheba is portrayed as somehow seducing David. Um, I don't know what stories you grew up with, but I bet some of you believe that Bathsheba was bathing on the roof. But the thing is, I don't know where this reading came from. And, but according to this reading, she was bathing on the roof, which was an indecent place for her to bathe. And she used her beauty to charm David and to then later use him to dispose of her husband so that she can then go into the palace and install herself as queen. But we need to get things straight here because Bathsheba was not on the roof of her house. That is never said in the text. We are told that David was on the roof of his house and from there he saw her bathing. The text tell, tells us that she was washing or purifying herself after her period. This was not an ordinary bath. This was in fact a ritual bath in accordance with Mosaic law. This was performed either in a separate part of the house or in a separate corner of the yard outside of the house in a special vessel, a special basin. What she was doing was nothing out of the ordinary. She was simply trying to worship God in accordance with her religion. Doing it in the same way and same manner as all the other faithful women in Israel. So therefore the problem, the problem was not how or where she was bathing and washing herself. The problem was that King David had a vantage point from which he could see what she was doing. The problem was that he had accumulated so much power that his house was so tall that he could see over other people's walls and fences. He could see in the places that were meant to be private and reserved for the individual's privacy. His power, in fact, was such that it violated people's boundaries quite literally. It invaded people's private spaces. But Sheba's only sin, according to the story, was that she was beautiful. All that she was trying to do is live life while being beautiful. Practice her religion while beautiful. So David inquired about her and found out that she's married. And he could have just stopped right there. But see, the thing is, David liked power. And he liked the fact that his power knew no boundaries. So he sent messengers to get her. And the word literally means to take her as you would an object. This is the language that in some other places in the Bible is used to um, describe marriage, taking a woman in marriage. However, David's plans was somewhat different. He had other plans in mind. And the fact that she didn't resist does by no means make her an accomplice in this plot. It only shows 
that she decided to hold on to the last thread of dignity that was left to her. She knew that when the king called and he sent his men to come and get her, she didn't have much choice in the matter. Not when this is King David, whose, whose reputation about his violence and his ruthlessness was widespread and well-known. The way he dealt with people he don't, didn't like. The way he dealt with his enemies. It was public knowledge. So when she came to him seemingly willingly she was just holding on to the last piece of dignity left to, left to her so she came and then he lay with her this is not a description of adultery this is not a, a, a description of a spring romance while her husband was away waging war for the king this is not a description of consensual lovemaking and romance what happened to Bathsheba is sexual assault and rape it is the familiar story of a powerful man using or rather abusing his authority and his influence to get what he wants fueled by his ideas and his objectification of women he makes unprovoked and unwelcomed sexual advances and it's very important also to stress that this we should be talking about this in the active voice not we it's not enough to say that Bathsheba was raped and sexually assaulted. We need to acknowledge that David raped Bathsheba and sexually assaulted her. And after he was done with her, she had to return home. There is no mention this time of David's messengers accompanying her. By this time, it's already the middle of the night. And after being assaulted and raped, Bathsheba is walking home alone in the dark. Scared by every shadow, frightened by every sound. She returns to her home, her house, which is no longer a safe place for her. Because her walls, her boundaries, her fences provided no protection against the gaze and the will of powerful men. We don't know how much time passed between this episode and the time when Bathsheba realized that she was pregnant. Back in the days they didn't have pregnancy tests. So it could have been some time before she noticed the first symptoms. And, and when David found out that she is pregnant, he, he, he decided to plot and to scheme and try everything in his power to cover this whole thing up. But eventually his schemes failed, ironically, because Bathsheba's husband was too loyal to his king. So David decided to simply kill Bathsheba's husband Uriah by setting a trap for him in the battlefield. And when Bathsheba heard what happened to her husband, we are told that she mourned. For him she lamented but as soon as the customary period of mourning was over David again sends his men to bring her to his house and the word here is very significant the word is to gather her to collect her to pick her up as if it, as if she was takeaway to pick her up so that he can add her to his collection. 
the story of how Bathsheba, like so many other women who are assaulted, had, had to live with her aggressor and bear him children. And the story of how she managed, in spite, against all odds, she managed to secure some kind of future for herself and for her children. And how she eventually, after David died, how she became the queen mother of the united monarchy of Israel. That is a bitter, bittersweet and difficult story that deserves our full attention, but perhaps another time. But what is even more tragic is David's part of the story. Because after this, David was famously confronted by the prophet Nathan. And he was rebuked for what he did. And by the way, by the way, Nathan never, he never condemned Bathsheba in any way. As a matter of fact, he later became one of Bathsheba's partners or accomplices, if you will. And he influenced David in order to put Bathsheba's son, Solomon, on the throne. And I imagine that over the years, um, the prophet Nathan must have become Bathsheba's friend, um, perhaps a mentor figure, some sort of confidant. Uh, um, and I would like to believe that it was because of this friendship that Bathsheba chose to name one of her children, one of her sons, Nathan, perhaps after the prophet himself. But what is tragic about Nathan's encounter with David is that Nathan had to resort to a parable. He had to tell David a story about a rich man that had many flocks and many sheep. And then a poor man who only had one little ewe lamb. And the prophet Nathan skillfully paints this picture and explains the intricacies of the intimate relationship that this poor man had with his little ewe lamb. And the tragic thing is that it took this story about a lamb to get David to actually feel some compassion. Nathan, you see, he knew David. He knew his past. He knew his beginnings. He knew that David started as a shepherd and that he has a soft spot for sheep, that he cared for sheep. But what is tragic is that David had more empathy for lambs than for other human beings. David had more compassion for sheep than for women. And then, uh, after this whole episode, after the encounter with Nathan, David goes to write his blues. He goes down to write Psalm 51. And the introduction said, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, except he didn't go into Bathsheba, he sent men to bring her to him against her will. And then David, he sings the blues, yeah? He, say, he talks to God and he says, against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Lord, have mercy. Lord have mercy, how dare he? I told you I don't like this song. Unlike Lowell Fulson's blues that acknowledges those that he has wronged. It even says, if I have done somebody wrong. He is looking, he is thinking preemptively, actively thinking about those that he could have potentially wronged. Unlike him, David doesn't even mention Bathsheba. He is spiritualizing his sin. He's using all these fancy religious words and language to describe his repentance. But does he ever really address the harm 
that he had done, does he ever address the pain and the suffering that he caused? Dear friends, we, we, we can't talk about repentance unless we address those that we have wronged. Last week was a tough one. I, I was devastated by, by the kidnapping and apparent murder of, of, of Sarah Everard. I was, I was completely disgusted by the events surrounding the, the, the aftermath of, of her death and, and all the violence connected to the vigils that were held in her honor. And, and I was forced to wrestle with difficult questions. How is a woman meant to live a normal life in this world when those who are charged with protecting her are the same ones that are attacking her? How are women meant to live their lives when those in charge of keeping them safe are the ones that are threatening their safety? In the days of ancient Israel, it was the king's job. The king was the one who was meant to take care of his people and make sure they are safe. But we saw how that went. And in this day and age, it's, it's the police, they are meant to keep us safe. We can see how that's going. So in all these, all these events that they, they, they reignited, they started again, yet again, this conversation about, about the reality in which many women are living that is radically different from the reality in which us men live in. Conversations about women's safety and, and, and how we as a society put the burden of providing their own safety on the women themselves. And how women are told that they need to avoid walking in the dark or being alone late at night as if the dark is what is attacking, harassing, raping and killing our women. As if it's not the men in the dark that are attacking, harassing, raping and killing our women. And these are not just, these are not just people's feelings. These are not people's guesses, people's projections. This is the hard reality. One in every five women has experienced some sort of sexual assault in her lifetime. Yet only 15% of women who experience sexual violence end up reporting it to the police. And you may ask why, and we should be asking ourselves why. Not because they don't want to, but because there are men in their lives who use their authority and their power to influence it and prevent it. Also because the police oftentimes do nothing. As a matter of fact, sometimes they cause even further harm and damage. And these are not some... These are not some mysterious men that are doing this to our women. 90% of women who are raped knew their rapists before the offense. And these are not just some random, nameless, anonymous women that we're talking about either. Last week I asked the women in this community, in London Life Church, I asked them to share their experiences anonymously with me. And the women of this church, of this community, of London Life Church, have been sexually assaulted by their partners, abused by their fathers, mugged on the streets. Men have tried to rape them. They've been physically, emotionally, mentally abused by their partners while being pregnant. They've had their drinks spiked. They've, had, they've been followed in the street. They've been deliberately intimidated, unwillingly exposed to indecency. 
And therefore, the women of this church, of London Live Church, feel threatened. And they have to take extra steps to ensure their own safety. They, have, they make sure they don't walk in the dark. They make sure they have someone who knows where they are at every single time. They talk on the phone or pretend they're talking on the phone with someone when they walk down the street. They never leave their drinks unattended. They never accept a drink if it wasn't open right in, in front of them. They carry... Oh my goodness, they carry photocopies of their documents in case they get attacked and their documents get stolen. They keep photocopies of their documents in secret pockets. They carry umbrellas even when the forecast does not call for it, just so they can feel safer. These are just some of the many things that I have never done in my life as a man. Especially as a white man. These are the women of London Live Church. These are the, women's, the women whose faces you see every week on our Zoom calls. These are the same women that, that, that would have been sitting next to you, in the chairs next to you here in church. They would have been singing praises to the Lord right next to you in church. These are the women that we're talking about. And listen, sometimes that's exactly, that's all the women are trying to do. All they're trying to do is worship God in peace. That's all they're trying to do. They're trying to worship God while beautiful. They're trying to practice religion while being a woman. And just like Bathsheba, their sin is sometimes just the fact that they're beautiful. Sometimes the problem is not how they carry themselves or what kind of clothes they choose to wear when they come to church. But instead, the problem is, for example, the shape of their body. Because we scrutinize and we judge women who wear the same clothes but have a different body type differently. And all the while, all the while, the problem has never been in their clothes. The problem has always been in our gaze. The problem is not in what they wear. The problem is that we have assumed a perspective, a vantage point like David's high tower from which we, can, we think that we can violate people's boundaries and people's privacy. So that even the simple act, the simple desire to worship God around men, around fellow believers, fellow brothers in Christ becomes dangerous. And I can imagine some of you men listening to this are probably thinking, this has nothing to do with me. I have never assaulted anyone. I've never raped anyone. I've never made a woman feel unsafe. But just because you think that you're not part of the problem doesn't automatically make you a part of the solution. The truth is that every single one of us, if we are honest with ourselves, all of us men, every last one of us has witnessed at some point or another Someone making a sexist comment, objectifying women, uh, acting in a way that makes women feel uncomfortable and unsafe. But how many times have we actually done or said anything about it? How many times have we spoken against other men when they act in such ways? The men who make our women feel unsafe are not some imaginary men in imaginary situations. These are our friends, our colleagues, our family members. And if we're not actively trying to become part of the solution, we are in fact a part of the problem. We need to repent. We need to address the issue. We need to change our ways. We are responsible for the safety of women. And I, and I know some of you will accuse me. They will say, Look at pastor, he's just pushing some sort of 
feminist propaganda or agenda or whatever. Let me tell you, I've got next to no patience for people who use the word feminist as if it were an insult of some sort. But let me tell you this, even if, I'll allow it, even if you want to approach this topic from the vantage point of the patriarchy, you want to stick to your ways, you want to hold up traditional values, whatever in the world that means, that's fine. Let's, 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 let's go with that. But isn't our role as men, according to that narrative, isn't our role as men to be protectors and providers? How come then we have been failing our women so miserably? Because that's exactly what we're doing. Whichever way you approach this topic, from whichever vantage point, we come to the same conclusion. We have been and we are failing our women terribly and we need to repent. Lord, have mercy. And when we look up to David, when we idolize David, and when we fantasize about being one of his mighty men, we organize groups and we call ourselves the mighty men of David. And when we quote scripture to each other and, and, and we're saying that David was a man after God's own heart, let us ask ourselves, which David? Which particular version of David are we talking about? Which particular episode of David's life? Are we talking about, are we talking about the David that massacred and mutilated his enemies? Are we talking about David that objectified and used women? Are we talking about the David that repented and spoke about his sins publicly? I'll be honest with you, I find it very hard to like David. I cannot reconcile David's character with the office of the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, which was his title. And I am extremely glad, I am, I am, I am comforted, I am relieved that Jesus is described consistently as the son of David. That he is a new, better Messiah, one who actually cares for his people and actually does everything in his power to protect them. One who treats the vulnerable, many of, of, of whom are women, with the utmost respect and love. A Messiah, a king, who when people tried to crown him, decided that it's better for him to disappear, to vanish. Who rejected violence by all means. He rejected violence to the point that he would rather be killed than use violence against someone who understood that the, the only proper attitude towards power is to reject it and give it away. But with Jesus comes a whole different challenge. With Jesus comes a whole new set of challenges. Because when we look at our rapists, murderers around us, we want justice. We want justice and, and, and we think that we have, we have achieved this justice by putting these people in prison. But Jesus brings a whole new set of challenges because Jesus says, and I don't know how to say this without sounding as if I am negating everything I said so far. I told you it's a difficult message. I don't know how to preach this. But with Jesus, we are told... That when we visit those in prison, we visit him. 
Jesus brings a whole new set of challenges because he tells us that the rapists, the murderers, the pedophiles, the sexual predators, the serial killers, the mass shooters, that they are all also his children. And that they are all also made in his image and that they provide a window through which we can see him. And that they also are worthy of forgiveness and capable of repentance. And because of this, and only because of this, I know that David, even though he was a rapist and a murderer, was forgiven when he repented. However incomplete his repentance may seem to me. But you see, Jesus brings a whole new set of challenges. Jesus set the standard so high. He showed us that even while we were killing him, he was forgiving us. Even while he was still on the cross, before anyone repented, before anyone acknowledged their sin and their wrongdoings, while he was still alive on the cross and breathing his last breaths, he prayed, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. The Bible says that God proved his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we extend forgiveness freely when there is no repentance, when there is no recognition of the harm done, no acknowledgement of those who were wronged? How do we do that without legitimizing the sin? How do we do that without covering up for it? How do we do that without disrespecting and further hurting and damaging those who have already been sinned against? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answers. Perhaps this is something that we need to ask ourselves. Perhaps we need to try and find these answers together. All I can say is, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit LondonLiveChurch.com.